3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This is Priya, and we're coming to you live. No, not live. We're coming to you recorded from our houses. <laughs> I'm here with Carly and Shahrazad. How are you today? Hey, Priya. Hi. Hey, Shahrazad. Hi, Carly. Hi, Priya. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, it's like 7.20 p.m. I know. It's so I, – I feel like I still haven't – quite gotten into the rhythm of recording these good mornings from a couple nights before. So apologies for that little slip up. But uh, as you hear this, you'll be driving your car or making your breakfast in the morning um, and we'll be listening along with you. Carly, how, how are you doing? Um, yeah, really good, Priya. Um, so I don't know if folks know of some of the like awesome mutual aid work that's been happening you know like the southeast with rise refugees and also incendium radical library um but definitely um check out incendium radical library on like um, instagram and then also rise as well so that you can donate to those incredible projects because i know that rise is nearly bought their food truck so they're nearly there with the GoFundMe and also Incendium Radical Library. Um, they're trying to raise enough money so that um, there can be Christmas presents for all of the families and they also support First Nations Mutual Aid Fund as well. Awesome. Yeah, and if you want to find RISE, that's at RISE Refugee on Twitter. Um, definitely go pitch in for the truck. They've been doing so much work to keep refugees, refugees, survivors and ex-detainees um, supported during a time where so many services have been um, very, very restricted. Um, so we've got a pretty massive show this week, uh, almost too massive. We, we've had to keep some juicy content for next week. Um, so maybe I'll throw to Shahrazad to kick us off on the rundown. So after the news with Kate Kelly, Lucy Watson, who is the editor-in-chief of Archer magazine, speaks with Rosie about the new issue of the magazine and the digital launch and fundraiser for Give Out Day, which is happening tomorrow night on Friday the 16th of October. Awesome. And then you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Panda Wong about her residency at Incendium Radical Library. Whispers from Home, which is a Google Doc poem that's going to be updated throughout the length of her residency. Panda is a poet and editor who lives in Nam, and she is an associate editor at the Suburban Review, who we've also interviewed before on our show. And she's been published in Runway Journal, Rabbit, Sick Leave, Liminal, and more. Awesome. And after that, I speak with Dr. Shelley Bielefeld, who is a researcher at Griffith Law School and the Law Futures Center at Griffith University. And she joins me to discuss the government's new push to expand the cashless debit card trials across the Northern Territory in Cape York and to turn those trials into a full-blown program. 
Uh, and then Hope Matumbu, who's a third-year nursing student, public health, community development and writing professional, and Michelle, who's been working in aged care as a nurse for five years, join us to discuss more about their perspectives of front, as frontline workers in aged care and disability support. So, huge, huge show today. And now we'll go to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. The grim reality for job seekers has been exposed in new research that lays out Australia's unemployment epidemic. So Anglicare Australia's latest survey of job availability, which was released on Wednesday, shows it is especially dire for people seeking entry-level jobs that do not require prior experience or qualifications beyond high school. So across the nation, there are eight entry-level job seekers for every appropriate position. In Tasmania, it is 21 job seekers per job. If you include all job seekers, including newly unemployed people with skills and experience who may be looking for work at a level below what they have previously held, there are as many as 106 job seekers for every entry-level position. The charity's report calls for three major reforms. The creation of a single livable income, something somewhat akin to the universal basic income, investment in job creation, and the closure of the job active service. And traditional owner communities in the Torres Strait fear that overcrowding caused by high rates of government employee housing will have long-term repercussions on health and well-being. So the high rates of government employee housing on some of the islands in the Torres Strait is fundamentally responsible for the housing shortage in the area, the local council mayor has said. In May 2018, the Morrison government pledged $108 million to um, traditional owner communities to fix the housing shortages in Cape York and the Torres Strait. But two years on, the housing shortage remains a pressing issue. So with 20% of Queensland's Aboriginal and Torres Strait population residing in remote or very remote communities, the federal government's promise was part of a plan to address severe overcrowding. But Torres Strait Mayor Vonda Malone told NITV News that while local councils had been advocating strongly for improved housing, the election promise was in self-evidence that there was still a great need for funds and only highlighted the minimal commitment on the part of the Morrison government. And back closer to home, a new report has shown that LGBTIA elders are... As at much risk, uh, at a much greater risk of homelessness, sorry, than the general population, with 40% of the community um, living in insecure housing or on the streets. The report showed that 40% of participants said that they had experienced homelessness, with 16% said that they were currently at risk. So Fiona York, who is Executive Officer of ha- for Housing for the Aged Action Group, who, who um, commissioned the report, said these figures could just be the tip of the iceberg. Home ownership was also an issue, with less than half of survey participants indicating that they own their own home, and on, of those, only 20% owning their home outright. So in comparison, in the cis-straight population aged 55 and older, 85% own their own home, and 65% of those own their own home outright. So older LGBTQI people 
um, are also seven times more likely to live alone than than the cis-straight older population, placing them at an increased risk of homelessness. And when it comes to those in private rental, of those surveyed, 36% receive a government pension, yet over a third of those stated that they were unable to afford rent. The report said greater social housing and rental support was urgently needed. And I'd just like to quickly add that Switchboard Victoria um, offers a number of support services for LGBTQI elders, including through the Out and About program. And you can give them a call on one eight hundred seven two nine three six seven if you'd like to access those services. That's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to three CR eight five five AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. So today we're joined by Lucy Watson, Editor-in-Chief of Archer Magazine. Thanks for joining us on Thursday Breakfast today, Lucy. We've had guests from Archer on the show before, but for those listeners who don't know the magazine, can you tell us a bit about Archer and the work that you publish? Yes, sure. So um, Archer magazine is really about diverse expressions of sex, gender, sexuality and identity. Um, We talk all things sexuality and who we are and, and relationships and and all of that sort of sort of stuff. So we started in in Melbourne back in 2013, um, and we're now up to currently working on issue 15. It comes out twice a year, and so we've done you know all kinds of stories on identity, sexuality, gender, um, anything that you can think of under that umbrella. Awesome. One thing I notice about the magazine is that it's always super lush in terms of the printing and the images, really beautiful colours. I was wondering if that's something that's important. It's kind of rare to see in independent publishing. Is that important to the stories and uh, type of representation you're interested in? Absolutely. I mean, visual storytelling and visual representation is just so important, and I think that's what's really valuable about Archer magazine. We have an amazing um, visual curator, visual editor, Alexis DeSolmias-Lee. Um, she's fantastic and she's been with the, the magazine from the beginning. And um, one thing that I sort of noticed coming in, I was the online editor of Archer magazine up until earlier this year. And then I kind of took over the reins um, of the print mag. And one thing that I sort of only noticed once you kind of or at the helm of the magazine is that it's so important how it looks when you just pick it up and flick through it. And that having that kind of 
visual representation and the diversity of bodies and the diversity of people that we can have visually representing the magazine and the stories um, is what really kind of contributes to its its importance because as you flick it through you see visions of yourself or people like you that you might not have ever seen before um, and also you know always helps to be brightly colored and on good quality paper um, it's definitely a magazine that we design to last you know it's sort of becomes this kind of time capsule of the sorts of things we were thinking about with regard to identity and sexuality in 2016, 2017, 2020. Um, I'm really looking forward to like the issues of this year kind of being this COVID relic. What were we thinking about with regard to gender and sexuality in 2020 um, and have it sitting on the coffee table for years to come? Absolutely. And so um, tomorrow night, you will be launching issue 14, the Growing Up issue. Can you tell us a bit about why that theme has been important in this moment, in this COVID moment? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's really interesting because I started preparing for the Growing Up issue um, when all of Australia felt like it was on fire. Um, and it felt like this really good distraction for me. It felt like this sort of chance to kind of bury my head in these sorts of naive stories of people's first times or coming out or beyond coming out, but, you know, your first time kind of encountering this particular thing, growing up, like what that kind of feels like. It really felt like a chance to escape for me and to bury my head away from what was happening. Um, and then as the months sort of wore on, you know, we sort of found ourselves in this pandemic. Um, and then we found ourselves in the midst of, you know, confronting a lot of the kind of racial white supremacist views that have been gripping most of, you know, our country and particularly the USA and sort of a lot of our pop cultural moments for a long time. Um, and it became kind of obvious that I wasn't really able to avoid things anymore the way that I sort of had wanted to or had hoped to. Um, and for me personally, that was a real growing up uh, moment for me, having this sort of time in the pandemic to kind of confront what it is that I think and believe um, and having, I suppose, the time to do that with the pandemic as well, right? Yeah, great. And um, is there one story or one example of a maybe a photographic piece in the growing up issue that you can give us a bit of a sneak peek about and what you're excited about in relation to gender or identity um, with that piece? So um, the first one I would point out um, is Paul Kidd's piece, um, and Paul will actually be speaking at the launch tomorrow night as well. Um, and Paul's piece was uh, is about um, his experience of, when he became HIV positive back in the early 90s, I believe, um, and and sort of what that moment felt like and how he decided um, he has what he calls his Gorgio conversion. So the Sero conversion is obviously when one person goes from being HIV negative to HIV positive. Um, Paul also in that transformation process underwent his Gorgio conversion where he decided that he would just be gorgeous. You know, there was the narrative around HIV positive people back back then um, that people sort of withered away, became weak, became skinny, ugly was kind of his what he was sort of talking about. And so he decided that he would not conform to that idea 
and instead be gorgeous and fabulous. Um, so it's a really, it's a really great story about this sort of transformation, both in terms of, you know, sero conversion and, and HIV status, um, and also self love and self respect. Um, so it's a really beautiful story and, and Paul will be reading from some of that tomorrow. Um, and the other one I'd bring up is Eve's, Eve's Reese, who's also speaking tomorrow night, um, who wrote this really great piece about the kind of regression back into childhood, um, when they discovered that the clothes that fit them best and suited them best were actually purchased from the boys section in Kmart. So kind of growing up and, and becoming an adult, um, and then finding your sort of true gender identity and finding the place where you find the clothes that fit that true gender identity happens to actually be in the boys section and, um, what that kind of means for your self-perception, I suppose. Amazing. Thank you. And so speaking of tomorrow night's event, uh, it's the launch for Archer, um, issue 14 growing up, but it's also a fundraiser for, as part of Give Out Day. So could you just give us a sense of what Give Out Day is and what you have planned for the event? Cool. So my understanding of Give Out Day is that it's this sort of national, nationwide day of donating to LGBTIQ plus community organisations. So it's sort of in recognition of the fact that um, LGBTIQ community orgs do a lot for our communities um, and sort of a chance to come together and recognise that work um, all at once. So we're doing an event as part of Give Out Day. Um, you know, all of the Archer Magazine team is volunteers. We all kind of work our butts off um, as a, on the side of what else we do. So we're all volunteers. Um, you know, like many, many organisations, I imagine this year, 2020, has been, tough, has been tough for us, um, you know, losing advertising money um, and so and, – and having to really rely on dried-up arts funding has been really difficult uh, for Archer. So, yeah, so we're really just doing a fundraiser to kind of help be able to continue – telling people's stories um, and telling the stories and representing the bodies and the identities of people who might not do it the way that other people, that the mainstream does it. Great. Thank you so much. And finally, just where can listeners keep up to date with Archer? Where can they buy the magazine? And most importantly, where can they attend tomorrow night's event? Aha. So tomorrow night's event is all held via Zoom, so it will be digital, so you can come and join us from your own living room. Um, the event details are all on the Archer Magazine Facebook and Instagram. You can just search Archer Magazine. We also have a website, archermagazine.com.au, um, and on the website there is a list of stockists for the mag for if you prefer to go and shop in person. Um, if you're unable to do that, then obviously there's also the opportunity to buy the magazine online. You can buy and subscribe through the Archer website, which is archermagazine.com.au. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me, Lucy, and letting us know about the event. And we'll be sure to share that on our social media as well. Awesome. Thank you, Rosie. And just then you heard a conversation I had with Lucy Watson, editor-in-chief of Archer magazine, talking about the new issue growing up and the fundraiser and launch party they're having tomorrow night. For details on attending the Archer launch and fundraiser, just search Archer magazine 
on Facebook or Instagram. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. You can also podcast our show. Just search 3CR Thursday Breakfast on your podcast app. Next up, I'm going to be speaking with Panda, who's a poet and editor who lives on unceded land in Nam. She is an associate editor at the Suburban Review and has been published in Runway Journal, Rabbit Sick Lee, Liminal and more. She's also a 2020 Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow and she joins us today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast to speak about Whispers from Home, which is an online residency as part of Incendium Radical Library. Welcome, Panda. Thanks so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Cool. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you today. <laughs> you too. Um, so first up, can you tell me um, how you've been grounding yourself throughout COVID-19? What's been keeping you going? Oh, like that's a really good question. Um, I would say I haven't been grounding myself so much as just like kind of obsessively doing things until I get so tired I have to lie down for a few days. But some of those things have involved... I've gotten really obsessed with doing hit YouTube exercises, like five days in one week and then not any the next week. Um, I've been reading a lot of manga um, and I've been just watching a lot of TV, like a lot of reality TV, like Selling Sunset or the recent Love Island US just finished. And that was that was nice to have a new episode every day to look forward to of nonsense (laughs) I actually love Love Island like much more than The Bachelor I feel like I learned so much more about relationships in Love Island Um. (laughs) it's good to talk about it with someone and like try to work out the dynamics between everyone and then you're like this is free therapy (laughs) (laughs) absolutely so let's talk about your residency at Incendium Radical Library Uh, So it's titled Whispers from Home, and it's a Google Doc poem that's going to be updated throughout the length of your residency. So it's an evolving document. Uh, So, yeah, tell us a bit more. Yeah, so I started, well, when I first thought I was going to do the residency, I thought I'd have access to the space, obviously, um, and maybe be able to do like more physical things like a reading or a workshop but obviously everything changed and um it basically was exciting because in even though it sucks that you can't do anything in person I think the one good thing that's come out of all of this is that we are maybe accelerating towards how to make work accessible online and not just accessible but like better that it's online so it's not like a compromise it's just a different form Um, And I've been doing this express media um, series of workshops about digital storytelling. So it felt like a good time to think of a different way to present my work rather than maybe just having a poem up on a website, which is really great. But um, there's just so many things you can do with computers. So I kind of decided to do a Google Doc because I me and my friend Tracy we were working on something together. But then we were just kind of like sending each other messages on Google Doc. Like, um, and we were like, oh, it's so much nicer than like a text message because you don't have like this notification telling you that you have to like respond. You can you can kind of just go to it whenever you want to and you can put like memes, you can change the text color, like you can really customize it. 
and it felt like a return to that time in the internet when you're like 13 and it felt really communal and everyone was just sharing stuff that they liked, um, which didn't last for very long. But yeah, I think that's kind of what I wanted to go at with this Google Doc. I wanted it to be like a low pressure um, communal document where I could just record thoughts and not feel a pressure to have like something be really interesting or profound and then just see what happens at the end of the month when I've like collected all of these things and yeah I think I'm just at the moment I'm into very gentle forms of of work. (laughs) Yeah that's so cool it's reminding me of um, MySpace (laughs) when you're talking about how you and your friend are sharing dialogue um, over Google Docs. I'm really interested in digital storytelling so what does it mean to you? Yeah, so so actually, so in the School's Digital Storytelling, which is run by um, Rory Green, we actually had a session about it. And I think in, after that session, I kind of decided it was not necessarily just anything that's told on a digital interface, but something that needs a digital interface to function. So it could be anything like a hyperlinked poem, because that would never work in print. It's not just like a poem that's on a website. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Um, just because actually, like, I think a lot of people are confused by the term because so many things are digitized now. But it really needs that digital element to function properly as a piece of work. And have you already started writing? And also, is it just yourself who will be writing poems or are other people also contributing to the Google Doc? Well, at the moment, I haven't actually decided yet. I think... We were talking, me and Tilly were talking about the possibility of um, maybe I come up with prompts and if anyone wants to, they can send stuff in. Because I think it would be nice. I don't want to put pressure on anyone to do anything they don't want to, but I think I do want it to be a little more communal than just me. Um, So TBC. And what are your initial thoughts with the project? What are you hoping to put out there? Well, um, after finishing this digital storytelling um, workshop, I've got a lot of like, I've learned a lot of new skills that I haven't done that much with. So I've actually been making like a bitsy game lately, which is like an 8-bit game. Um, And there's some really cool stuff you can do with code and text and like just learning all these things. So I think I want to do little digital experiments and put them into the Google Doc. But it's also just like, you know, putting in thoughts. Um, I've been thinking a lot about missing, like, bodies water, like going to the ocean or the pool or the creek because I haven't been to one for four months, I would say. Um, so it'll probably feature a lot of that kind of talk just because that's what I'm obsessed with at the moment. And probably putting in snippets and from what I'm reading and taking in because I'm taking in so much content. <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm like, I need to process all the content I'm taking in or else it's just, yeah, it's too much content. I need to do something with it. Yeah, for me, that's one of the joys of doing radio because I get to (laughs) share all those thoughts that are ticking around in my brain um, with, yeah, fantastic people like yourself who I have had the great joy of meeting only through COVID and through doing radio. Um, So what kind of things have you been reading up on at the moment and are really interested in um well I've been reading 
I got, I actually only just started this book and it's right next to me, but it's called The Library of Ice by Nancy Campbell. It's really beautiful. Um, she kind of just talks all about ice, but it's also basically about climate change and global warming um, and the impact of ice on our lives and how that's going to change in the next decade or so. Um, and Rory sent that to me because they thought that that was basically directly relevant to missing bodies of water. Um, I've also been reading a bit about the RRC, which my friend Hannah Wu sent me some info about. And it's about this um, sea that the Soviet Union um, drained. They used the water for crops um, in the desert. But because of that, over the last 30 years, it's basically like a non-existent sea anymore. And all the ecosystems and communities that used to be there have vanished. Um, and I've also just been reading a lot of poems because I think short things are good for COVID brain. So, like, I've been reading, what have I been reading? I've been reading Ariana Rhines just because it's reliable. Um, it always makes me feel something. And Ada Limon. So, two favorites. Nothing super new, just things I keep returning to. Oh, that's really beautiful. Um, another poet, Vincent Silk, he shared a poem on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast a little while ago, and he loves doing the um, returning back to poems as well. Um, yeah, and I think it's a really great time throughout COVID and stage fictions in Nam to be revisiting um, a lot of things that you've previously done and like reflecting on them. So... Uh, I was wondering if you'd like to share some poetry um, maybe that you've previously written and you've been reflecting on or maybe reworking throughout COVID. Um, I can read, I mean, I can read the poem that I wrote about, um, I keep talking about missing bodies of water, but I guess mm. I'm working on. So I can read that and this is the poem that I'm turning into an 8-bit game. So it's called Damp Feelings. I haven't seen a body of water in four months. I haven't swum in the ocean for more than a year. I haven't seen a lake for over 730 days. The last time I was at the pool, I cried because they told me I couldn't use my dead dad's annual pool membership and I felt like a scumbag. Four months is almost half a pregnancy and I could have germinated half a baby in that time. I could have named it Cesspool, my firstborn. It turns out that we're born into this world screaming and with the same water content, approximately 75% as fresh potatoes. Memories don't have meat. Nostalgia has no bite, or rather no swell, no crest, no peak. People often think of the deep ocean as a cold and lifeless region. But in the depths, fish make their own light, and it's called bioluminescence. On an ambient seabed, certain objects light up in the darkness. It's a sexy little chemical reaction, lucifrin and oxygen intermingling in the water. It's a common phenomenon, and because the ocean is so big, it's the Earth's most common form of communication. If you don't like the ocean, then it won't love you. And if you don't feel a certain kind of way about a place where whales exist, I don't know how to help you. If you don't appreciate its style, then you should go marry a smart home device. A and I go to Coburg Aquarium. It's the kind of aquarium that is actually a shop. It's like a koi pond that's actually a Victorian sewer. 
On Google reviews, there are 28 reviews tagged with the word dead. One reviewer, Eleanor 800, describes the aquarium as full of nightmares. Chris G simply says, heaps of dead fish. A and I witness an eel leap out of a tank into a neighboring tank and massacre an innocent fish by shaking it like a dog with a bone. A and I do not leave a Google review. Whales can die in dramatic ways. When a whale is beached, it is not a luxurious end. There is a chance it will explode. It's an unsexy big chemical reaction. As a whale's stomach contents decompose, gas builds up and is trapped. Its orifices can sometimes close up and confine the gases present in its stomach. When passers-by disturb the whale, it can rip the skin. When the whale's skin rips, it unleashes a perfect storm of guts and gas. I'm looking at JPEGs of Mary Creek on my phone. Phones flatten things and remove their gloss. Mary Creek looks so far away. If you haven't taken a crush to Mary Creek yet, you should give it a red hot shot. On Wednesday, the 25th of January, 2012, a platypus was rescued from a tangle of rubbish and debris in Mary Creek. For a long time, it was thought that platypuses were locally extinct. Who knew that Mary Creek JPEGs had the potential to make me so emotional? I read somewhere that Gwyneth Paltrow thinks that water has feelings, but I don't need water to reciprocate my feelings. I think it's creepy when old poets write things like the bosom of the sea. I would never motorboat the ocean. This year, the closest I've been to a body of water is ocean swimming on Animal Crossing. Nighttime is the best time to do this. Towards the end of our lives, we have the same water content as pizza dough. It ranges from 50 to 60%. This lockdown, I've been thinking about exploding whales by luminescence, rotting me and birthing fresh potatoes. I dream of staring at the bottom of a pool again. I miss having so many opportunities to float. It was storming when I wrote this. So many tiny bodies returning to bigger bodies. Thank you. (laughs) That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Panda. Um, My mind was, it actually felt like it was meandering down a river throughout your poem. Um, And I feel like you've merged actually so many of my own personal thoughts (laughs) um, because I have been absolutely missing the water. Um, I'm Wangi and my family, they grew up in Louis Creek, so that's my mob, um, and it's near Bujamala, and Bujamala is our big, like, water body up there. Um, and, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about home, a lot about water, missing water, um, and then also platypus. They're my favourite animal. Um, for listeners out there, they actually have venom, so that's pretty interesting. Um, they're one of the only mammals that has venom. Yeah. Cool. It's the yeah. Little, they've got the little hook, right, or the little stinger. Is that where it is? Um, I'm not sure, but, yeah, I'll have to do some more research. <laughs> <laughs> I love animal facts. I've been listening a lot to um, a podcast called Ologies throughout COVID. I'm going to write that down because I've been, I've been, like, revisiting, like, just nature documentaries, but – yeah, I need some new ones. I was just going to say that there's actually, like, a platypus spotting app if you see them in Merry Creek. So you can, like, download it and just log your sightings, which is really nice because um, they've been coming back, which has been quite exciting. Wow. 
That's really exciting. I'm going to have to check it out. (laughs) Is there anything, lastly, that you'd like to share with listeners? Um, Also, let listeners know how they can follow your work. Not heaps. I just, like, you know, I'm so grateful to IRL for doing this. They've been, like, a really nice presence um, throughout COVID. Like, Tilly's always so supportive, and obviously IRL's um, sending out food packages to everyone, so kind of just want to remind listeners that that's going on and you can donate um in terms of my own work i guess you could follow me on instagram which is washed up underscore retail superstar (laughs) but you can also just um see what's happening at irl um i think i think that's something i'm really looking forward to doing this year so i'm excited to see how it unfolds incredible Well, thank you so much, Panda, for joining us this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Cool. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Thursday Breakfast Show on 3CR 855 AM. Next up, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Shelley Bielefeld, who's from the Griffith Law School and the Law Futures Center at Griffith University. Shelley is joining me to speak about the cashless debit card and the new bill related to turning the cashless debit card into a permanent program that's currently before the House of Representatives. Hi, Shelley. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me on the show. You're welcome. And hello to you too, Priya. So uh, before we jump into this, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your work in a little bit more detail for listeners? Okay, yes. So I'm uh, an academic at Griffith Law School, as you've heard, and I'm working on a couple of Australian Research Council grants at the moment where the compulsory cashless welfare phenomenon is part of both both of those grants and, and some other yeah, welfare conditionality measures that people have to jump through lots of hoops to, to get their social security payments. So it's an area of interest for me, what's happening with the cashless debit card. And yeah, I've been working on one of those projects is due to conclude in, in coming months and the other one will be extended for some time due to the, the COVID fieldwork interruptions. So before we get into some of the problems with the cashless debit card, um, for people who aren't familiar with it, what is the cashless debit card? How does it work? Where does it operate? Okay, so the cashless debit card, it has been introduced from 2016 in some government-selected trial sites. So it was first introduced in Sejuna and the East Kimberley, and then following those two sites, introduced in the goldfields, and then more recently from 2019, introduced into the Hinkler Electric, which covers Harvey Bay and Bundaberg and a few of the surrounding townships, small towns in between. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a card that is issued by a financial services provider, INGU Limited, so it's not issued by government in the same way that the basics card is that has been operating under income management programs in select sites as well for a very long time now, since the Northern Territory Emergency Response started in 2007. It's been, the basics card have been in the Northern Territory and a few other, a few other field work sites. Um, we covered in one of our ARC grants as well at Bayford and Shepparton, for example. 
that the cashless debit card, the government is marketing that as the the new and improved version, really, the income management. So with the, the new bill they've got before the parliament, they're saying that it's uh, going to make uh, it more possible with improved accessibility to more stores for people who are currently on income management in the Northern Territory and, and Cape York because the basics card arrangements are that the storeholders have to apply to be approved merchants for the purposes of people being able to spend their income quarantined money at those stores. So with the basics card, the quarantine amount, the restricted portion has been 50% for most payment types, but for some payment types, like up to 90% in, in Cape York. With the cashless debit card, the restricted portion is 80%. And that means that people are left with 20% of their social security payment in cash. In a couple of the field work sites where it's been rolled out so far, the CDC in Sejuna and in the East Kimberley, they've had a, a community panel option where people could apply to a community panel and try to get uh, a different percentage restriction. Yeah, I think um, some of the key takeaways there are, you know, one, income management is happening in way more places than we normally think about. Um, and the other thing is, you know, there are some differences between the cashless debit card and mm-hmm. the basics card. Um, and obviously there's this sort of push to expand it across more and more sites. Um, so what are the what are the stated aims of the cashless debit card? What does government say that um, it's addressing? And what are some of the issues that have come up with these um so far, trials, but as we'll discuss later, uh, maybe not trials for much longer. Mm. So, yeah, so some of the issues that the government say they're trying to address are related to substance abuse and gambling problems. So to start with, when the card was first introduced and, yeah, the, the ministers were talking about it a, a lot as a way of dealing with what they referred to as welfare fueled substance abuse and welfare fueled violence happening in communities. So it was very much tied into the idea that people on social security are more prone to be spending their income on illicit substances and wasting it on gambling and not paying for essentials that themselves and their family members who are dependent may need. So it was very much tied to a discourse of deficit with people who need government income support being portrayed in a very negative way. And there were some powerful players within particular locations where it's been introduced who also perpetuated that kind of narrative. So Alan Suter, for example, in Sejuna and uh, Keith Pitt up in the Hinkler electorate who's the the federal MP up there. So in each location there were there were a few powerful elites who yeah got on board with this idea of well we need to do something to address this you know substance abuse issue and community related harm but more recently in more recent years we're seeing another objective added in to the language and that is this idea that this is going to somehow be a cure for people who are welfare dependent and for intergenerational welfare dependence. So we see in the new bill that's been put before 
the Parliament recently, last week, so the Social Security Administration Amendment Continuation of Cashless Welfare Bill 2020, we can see some new objectives there and and getting rid of some old ones because in the first uh, lot of objectives with the legislation or the bill that was put, put up in 2015, there was an idea that the community panels would be having a significant role, an oversight role, if you will. In, in some respects, because people within the community then were presumed to know other community members who'd come before them to see if they could have a reduction in their quarantine portion. One of the interesting things to see in the new bill is that that's like those objectives are gone now. So the new objectives are still around restricting the amount of social security income that people would have to be spent on alcoholic beverages, gambling and illegal drugs and to encourage socially responsible behaviour. And they've got a a new objective there around financial literacy, basically, where they say it's to support program participants with their budgeting strategies. That's one of the uh, concerning things as well is suggesting, you know, that this is a financial literacy tool rather than um, just a just another mode of punishing the poor or entrenching this um, the notion of I guess a deserving versus an undeserving poor um, based on the stigmatization of substance use or of um, you know engaging in gambling, um, but you know this doesn't necessarily relate to the issues that people are facing on the ground. And there's been quite a bit of pushback against the cashless debit card. And I'm wondering if you could um, let listeners know a bit about some of the grassroots and other opposition to the cashless debit card since the inception of the trials. Mm, Sure. So, yes, there's been quite a bit of opposition arise in a range of the different trial sites. So there's been anti card protests in Sejuna. There's been Facebook and social media groups crop up uh, in the trial sites as well. There's been the Sano 07 um, developer and, and No Cashless Debit Card Australia and this, a, a range of different people who've been very concerned about this in locations where it's been rolled out in, in part because of the negative stereotypes portrayed in government discourse introducing the scheme, but also in part because of what the card in and of itself does. So, I mean, one of the things that came up in in the Hinkler fieldwork that I was involved with was people saying, well, it's just so obvious when you're going shopping and there's the big Inju logo on the card, it's a, you know, it's a shameful thing when people make comments about that when you're, to pay for things and even without the Inju logo on the card though the way that the the way that the government has framed not only the card but the rationale for the card and the generalized negative attributes that they maintain are part of the character of people on welfare anyway is is deeply problematic and offensive to a lot of people so um, I mean, one of the things that has come up in the multi-sided field work is the shortage of jobs in these areas. So some of the people we were interviewing, they had training, they had undertaken training, they ha- were applying for jobs, but they weren't 
positions available that, like there wasn't just one position available that would give them a living wage. And so they often needed a social security top-up. This is applying to the underemployed as well as the unemployed and to people who have tried really hard all their lives to be financially responsible. And a lot of the people we were interviewing had been financially responsible with bill payment until they were put on the card. And then all sorts of basic bill problems happened for them as a result of being put on the cashless debit card. So rent payments bouncing back into their accounts. Uh, a lot of people mentioning that they were having difficulty paying for things that should have been permissible expenditure uh, under the scheme because the, the card says, well, you know, it's, it's just to rule out purchases of alcohol, gambling, etc., and everything else is permitted expenditure. And the government, again, in this explanatory memorandum with the, the latest bill, says it works just like in any other bank card. And that's just not true. That's not borne out by the empirical evidence. So there were a lot of people who'd spoken to me in interviews who had problems paying for things like tutoring for their school kids or their school kids' uniforms or paying for school photos or paying for food and beverages at a sporting event for their child. All sorts of things that shouldn't be made difficult for people that were actually made a lot more difficult because of the card and indeed made impossible in some situations. And the department says, well, People can transfer money every 28 days. They can transfer up to next to $200. But if you need money that week for something and the, the transfer period takes some days, it's, it's not a good situation for people to be in. And the, and the other thing is, I mean, a lot of people have had to ask permission from the department and from INJU to then purchase what they've wanted to purchase from a private seller. So the, the CDC, I mean, the government says it's accepted everywhere. It's actually not accepted everywhere in terms of sellers of second-hand goods, for example, or private sellers of vehicles, things like that. So people have to go through a time-intensive and intrusive permission-seeking process to purchase quite a few things. And that is something that is not even mentioned in the explanatory memorandum for the current bill, which is now saying, well, income management's too expensive a program for us to keep operating. So we're going to put everyone on the CDC instead, who's in the Northern Territory and in the Cape York and continue all of the trial sites. And despite community feedback about the ways in which it hasn't worked well in a range of different parts of, of the country, the government's response has been to say, well, no, it's a success because we had an ORIMA evaluation that said it was. And we've had a evaluation coming out of the University of Adelaide with three baseline reports saying that there were promising beginnings. But though, like the Adelaide Uni research has not been finalised and published, so there's nothing on an evidentiary basis that indicates that the program is actually the success that the government claims that it is. I mean, the, the Orima research was strongly criticised by a range of academics, including myself, but also by the Australian National Audit Office in terms of its methodology and the failure to triangulate with administrative data. The hardest thing working in this space is I think it's they can no longer say they don't know it causes harm to a significant number of people who are forced on the program. They just ignore the harm for those people.
Absolutely. And I think, you know, something that you've really captured there is not only uh, is there a significant amount of pushback, not only do the trials not work, um, but the government continues to push uh, to push the cashless debit card on the basis of pretty faulty evidence and, and evidence that doesn't even necessarily, you know, when, when it is useful and, um, you know, when when the data does provide some sort of useful uh, information about the situation doesn't even point towards the success of the trials anyway, as fraud oh, as it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so one of the things, for example, in the ARMA research that I think was useful to come out of that report was that within a, a specific time frame that they mentioned in the report, there were over 30,000 transaction attempts that failed. And this was for what was then a cohort of less than 2,000 people. And it was over, I think it was like either a three or a six month period. But over 30,000 transaction phase, that meant that people were trying to attempt to spend their money that many times and either through, you know, like technology glitches, which do happen with technology outages or pin, like failing to remember a pin number or some other issue, uh, couldn't, couldn't actually spend the money that they had. And, at the time they wanted to have it. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, the government says with the CDC that, you know, like people can ask the department to purchase something from a secondhand seller, etc. But it always involves time and it always involves, you know, a situation where there's a level of oversight of purchases that just is not only incredibly paternalistic, but also really un unwarranted and intrusive and an invasion of people's privacy. I mean, this is absolute insanity, I think, that the government is investing millions of dollars, now over $79 million, in micromanaging poor people's incomes. And I think this has far more to do with the government creating a new industry in social security payment processes that is very lucrative for Indu Limited, far more to do with that than any real benefit going to a broad number of cardholders who are put onto this program. Like there's no generalizable evidence of benefit for the entire cohort or even the majority of the cohort. Really, I mean, in terms of who gets the biggest benefit from this, I think it's Indu Limited. They are getting a recession-proof income. Like we are in hard times economically as a nation, as is so much of the world with COVID. And, you know, Indu has found a way to have a, a bumper crop in terms of a recession-proof income. It's just absolutely shocking um, to sort of think about both the, the detail in terms of government and also private sector surveillance of people's um, spending, but also um, the fact that this is such a such a blatant sort of creation of a of a market for to capitalize on on poverty and on the failure to adequately provide the sort of social services that would actually address some of the issues that government suggests that the card is addressing. Absolutely, and like Sajuna, for example, they haven't had a rehab facility. If the if the government had have seriously been wanting to address alcohol addiction issues within that region, then they should have tried all sorts of other known-to-work methods first. 
It's so it's so counterintuitive. So where can listeners find out uh, more about both this bill and the cashless debit card in general and also um, find out more about the work that you're doing on the cashless debit card? Okay, so in terms of the bill, if people want to Google continuation of cashless welfare bill 2020, it will take them to the Parliament of Australia homepage and there they'll be able to see the text of the new bill and also the explanatory memorandum documents and the human rights like compatibility statement that accompanies the bill and can have a, a bit more of a look at that in detail. There's on that page, like it says that submissions are, are due shortly in relation to the bill. So I'd encourage anyone who's interested to, to make a submission. And in terms of the work that I'm doing, it's available through a range of different avenues. But if people look at my Griffith homepage, they'll see a few links there. So one of them is to an SSRN page. So, so people enter my name, Shelley Bielefeld, my surname, B-I-E-L-E-S-E-L-D. And if people enter that into SSRN, a lot of my papers will come up for free download, my published research. And I've also got an academia.edu site where, like, yeah, one of the, the big reports that I've done is available for download there and some of my other body of work on income management and the cashless welfare phenomenon that we're seeing. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I really appreciate all of the work that you've been doing to raise awareness about this issue, to amplify the voices of people that are affected by the cashless debit card. And um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing where your research leads next. Thanks very much, Priya. You're on 3CR 855 AM, and this is the Thursday Breakfast Show. You just heard an interview with Dr. Shelley Bielefeld from Griffith Law School and the Law Futures Center at Griffith University, who joined me to speak about the government's recent renewed push to expand the cashless debit card across the Northern Territory in Cape York and to turn the cashless debit card trials into a full-blown program. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Hope Bull is a third-year nursing student, public health, community development and writing professional. And Michelle has been working as an aged care nurse for five years. And they both join us today to speak more on the perspective of frontline workers in aged care and disability support. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Hi, hi. Good to, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, so, Professor, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and the work that you do? Uh, so, my name is Michelle. I work as a registered nurse in an aged care home uh, in Melbourne. Um, I've been working for five years as an aged care nurse. It's been amazing. I love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, hope? Yeah. Um, my name is Hope. Uh, I'm just completing my third year of a nursing degree. And currently, I'm just sort of working casually in in-home care um, and as well as in the community in sort of palliative care. Mm. Okay. And, um, and from your different perspectives, uh, how have you seen COVID-19 affect your and your colleagues' 
work as well as your clients or residents care? Um, I think um, as an aged care nurse working in an aged care home, there's definitely been um, a rapid shift from everything being face-to-face and hands-on to being online now, which means that a lot of the residents who have um, hearing impairments or are visually impaired, um, they miss out a bit on the telehealth conferences that they need to attend and also talking to their families. So it's actually been a quite isolating experience, I've noticed, for the residents. Um, and I've noticed as well with my colleagues, um, they're feeling quite isolated as well on a different level, on a more geographical level, because a lot of my colleagues are from overseas. So then they're feeling isolated in the sense that they can't go home to their families and vice versa. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what Hope's experiences have been. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think, yeah, I, I really agree with you there, Michelle. Um, but I guess for me, still being a student, um, it's been tough because the, um, Victorian government mandated that, uh, nursing students aren't allowed to work in aged care facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess that was a COVID measure when for me, I really believe that a, a, a good thing to have done is maybe pay nursing students or maybe find a different way to um, guarantee us the hours that we need to get the, the degree mm-hmm. so that we don't have to move around. So I, I think I think that that's a, it. It's such a huge disservice to nursing students to be shut out of aged care at the moment because this is an opportune moment for student nurses to understand mental health, to understand palliative care, to understand chronic care, to understand how all of those things intersect and um you know, uh, result in the outcomes for the resident. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is actually a critical time that we need nursing students to be in aged care homes. So it's really a shame um, what you're saying, Hope. Yeah. Uh, students not coming because this is just ugh, ridiculous. Yeah. I, I we need students. I definitely agree, you know, and, and so it means that for, for some people who just relied on aged care jobs, you know, they don't have a job anymore. Um, but on on the other hand, I guess um, looking at some of the clients that I'm it's through a loophole. So they say that we can't go into facilities like where you are, Michelle. Um, mm. But for me, I look after, uh, you know, luckily I know one-on-one clients that I look after at home. So people mm. who are still able and that sort of thing, but they just maybe need a little bit of help at home, um, uh, you know, during shower times and meal times and that, and that sort of thing. So what we're seeing now is that some people have just been afraid to, to, to use these services. Some service providers have just gone, we're not doing home visits anymore for your safety and for our safety, which in Mm. some ways is fair enough. I think what you're finding is that for a lot of people who maybe could get by at home for a few more years, that lack of services, i.e. me coming in into their homes, will probably mean, you know, an exacerbation of symptoms. And like Michelle has Mm. said as well, you know, at least the facility get people like Michelle going in almost every day and almost every other day, you can easily tell if someone is deteriorating and may need to go to hospital. 
But if you just have someone who was living independently at home by themselves and just needed a bit of help here and there, um, you know, who's checking in on these people? And to what extent is that a quality check-in, if, if that makes exactly. sense? Exactly. So we know mm-hmm. that some people can't access telehealth. For, for whatever reason, um, you know, due to a disability, living with a disability or other stuff, or just because they're not comfortable with it, you know. I've exactly. got a like, two-year-old lady who, you know, yes, she's good on the, on the telephone, mm. but, but, you know, sometimes talking to her because she knows me and she's like, oh, and what's the doctor going to do? He's not even looking at it. So sometimes to jog her memory and that sort of thing, sometimes you need a head to assessment as a physician, as a clinician, to say, okay, now we need to see the whole of your body. Not everybody has access to technological devices where you can sort of have that assessment. So sometimes I've seen Mm. some gaps in some things that you may be able to pick up face-to-face by Mm. reading book of someone, um, Mm. as opposed to on on the phone where someone is so confused with this whole, how does this phone thing work? tell you about why they were there or or this other stuff so Mm. um and you sort of just mentioned there uh hope uh some of the um gaps that you've been seeing and also um uh the sort of uh the exacerbation uh, of um isolation for people living with disabilities um, and, and Michelle, you also mentioned the the complications around using online systems. Was there anything else that see like, how the? Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I apologise. Sorry, no, no, so no just for the audience so they can follow along. So how these two um, situations interlink? So I'm an aged care nurse in an aged care home, and Hope is working in the community. So. If the person in the community deteriorates, at some point they will deteriorate to the point where they'll have to be hospitalised. And then once they're hospitalised, then we're contacted to come and get them. So that's usually how the process works. But what we don't want is for people to be deteriorating so dramatically alone in their homes without support to the point that they have to go into the hospital because that's dangerous in and of itself because there's COVID happening in the hospital. So we don't want people to be deteriorating in their homes and then hospitalised. We actually want them to be visited regularly by staff like Hope. So it's just so disappointing that we're not getting, it doesn't sound like we're getting the support. Well, Hope doesn't seem to be getting the support. And and I think, yeah, I, I really agree with you there, Michelle. And, you know, to, to answer your question um, as, as well, Sherry, I think it highlights, I, I mean, the lack of thought, you know, mismanagement and, and, you know, everybody, you know, talks about, you know, the government and that sort of thing. But it is a mismanagement because people haven't mm. thought about things properly. So, mm. so Michelle was correct in saying that I'm in the community and she's in aged care. But when you look at the whole umbrella, both her and I are considered community together. Like, so, you know, when we talk about COVID and dealing with COVID and that sort of thing, and when people sort of applaud frontline workers, they really forget the community aspect. Exactly. You know, facilities feature more prominently, and then this one-on-one in-home care is even lesser beyond that. But Mm. I, I would like to think that, you know, the conversation has been lost about community care, period. Whether it's in a facility or whether it's in somebody's home, that we're not really 
putting the kinds of support and safeguards. So by saying that the only way that you can get a nursing degree is through a hospital system and that, some, you know, we, I, I think that the resources that we've put into the community, we've drained the community of resources. We haven't put in as much resources in the community as we have into hospitals. And mm. people, at the very same time, I also see that the community that, uh, sorry, the resources that have been put into hospitals are also not enough because we're seeing mm. the outbreak. We're seeing, um, you know, clinicians in hospitals coming forward and saying the PPE and whatever stuff that we have is not is not enough. Mm. So the hospital concerns are valid. When you get that happening in an even more neglected area, such as community care, and we're talking age facilities, disability facilities, and then into people's homes, then mm. you see how that trickle-down effect of lack of support and resources then eventually weighs in. And what mm. you say, Michelle, is true in that I think that, you know, the government is now admitting, oh, yeah, I guess we don't have any resources for HK. Like, nothing structural has changed. Mm. And what we're going to see is maybe people whose symptoms have been exacerbated and all of a sudden now HKs have had to widen even more. Mm. Now more people will be needing some of that respite care and more mm. people will be needing rehab, you know? Exactly, yeah. So so when is this problem going to get fixed? Because, I, you know, I predict and Michelle, you know, would probably agree and other people would agree that in the next couple of years, there's going to be even more as a consequence of, of some of these health impacts of, of COVID overall. So uh, you, you talked about how uh, money's been put into facilities and that sort of thing um, yeah. and not been put into community care, but uh, could you explain a bit more what community care is? Oh, sure. Yeah, community care, I guess, is 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 um, care either in a community facility such as an aged care home that Michelle is in or, mm. or maybe even um, a, a disability uh, community where either people stay either permanently or sometimes people who just need a bit of respite um, and, and that's, you know, and by respite, we just mean like may, maybe they main carers who may be family or a loved one. Um, you know, they just need a little bit of break at home. And so they go somewhere in for a bit of short term until maybe they have, um, you know, improved a certain skill such as physical rehab, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, disability care work has increased for people as people have gotten improved access to NDIS, which mm-hmm. means that workers such as myself or other workers, can go and support people in the home, rightfully so. If there's someone who can come in for a couple of hours a day to help, then that's great. Now, those sorts of community resources used to be, you know, for some people, they used to be in the hands of local councils. So it was really local councils who were doing that work. But with the increased sort of privatization and casualization and with the, you know, introduction of the NDIS, you know, you find that local councils don't have that job anymore. And now that's sort of been filtered out to different services. And that's where people then get hired. And then you find that casualization. So a person may belong to many different organizations or just one. Mm. Now, if people are unable to care for themselves in the home, then they move to a an aged care or other facility, such as the one that Michelle works in. But that still is community care because it's more of a community establishment, you know. And so in those places, if someone's condition gets to a point where they need medical interventions, then they go into hospitals. So, so, so you know, aged care facilities are still community care because you can still go, go visit, you know, your grandmother, you know, 
the standards, not the standards, but like the things that you can do in a community care setting aren't the same that you can do in a hospital setting. And, and rightfully so, I guess like the, the hospital setting is for really acutely unwell people where it's like, okay, you need a blood transfusion, you need a bit of an operation, then you need us to look after you until you can, you know, be managed in the community. And the community is either at home or the facility from where you came from or the hospital could decide to admit you into a facility for a short period of time and give Michelle, people like Michelle, a bit of a handover to say, look, this person's just had this procedure. They're now in a stable place, but we need you to help them with X, Y, and Z before they, they can then go home. So that's what it pretty much looks like, sort of. Okay, thanks. Um, and yeah, I, I guess you just mentioned uh, the sort of casualization and privatization. So can we t can we talk about that? Because um, yeah, last Thursday the federal government did commit to adopt to adopting all of the uh, aged care royal commission recommendations in addressing um, COVID nineteen in aged care facilities. But uh, Tuesday night's budget contained uh, no allocated spending um, on key uh, on those key recommendations. Um, and often in reports that we've seen come out of like why these outbreaks have been so um, uh, detrimental is uh, casualization and the privatization of the industry. Um, so I guess could could you speak a bit to that? Maybe Michelle, could you could you speak a bit um, to? Uh, yes, I can. Um, the aged industry is a it's an organisation like McDonald's, KFC, you know, um, British Petroleum, like there are, you know, aged care homes and organisations that are like that, that are big. Um, and it's, it's good in a way because it streamlines care and it makes sure that care is delivered. Um, but at the same time, um, I guess the person to... That um, sense of individuality of the care is lost um, when you have huge organisations looking after clients and looking after patients and residents. Um, with the casualisation, um, we do have a lot of casual staff in aged care and um, everything is permanent part-time. So we do have um, predominantly part-time positions as well. So when people um, call off sick or um, are on maternity leave or holiday leave, um, it's extremely difficult to replace them. We have a huge staff shortage. I used to work for an agency nursing organisation, and agency nursing is where um, you'd be called to go to a place where um, – they require a nurse because that nurse is off sick. So you go in from the agency and I've been in situations where I've been called in to go in to replace a nurse at an organisation. I've done my shift and then the nurse to follow on for the morning hasn't arrived because I don't have a nurse for the morning. So I've gone from a night shift into a, into a morning shift and I didn't get to go home until midday. Um, and, and that was the time when they were able to cover and find another nurse. Like we don't have staff. It's um, it's that bad. Did you have anything to say about that hope at all? About um, I or just, to add? I just think that it's 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 really interesting. I think that 
I, I agree with Michelle as well. Like, you know, they sort of age kids. It's really funny. Everybody spoke about like the security guard industry being a cowboy industry, but the age care industry is the same. And I think that capitalism plays a big part in, 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 in a lot of this, in the way that people are sort of allowed to just sort of, you know, run free and, and the way that people do things is different and there's a lot of cost cutting. And I think that it'd be really nice to kind of get at least minimum ratios and those mm. kinds of things to, to, to guarantee safety. But I think that there's a lot of loopholes and a lot, a lot of things that HK has been allowed to get away with because they just kind of haven't been mandated, I think. And I think that the aged care sector is, is a sector that likes to have its cake and eat it too, because mm. I think that in some ways you have like a lot of very smart and capable people who are working in aged care and sometimes the sector likes to sort of use them but not pay them what they owed. But sometimes you also have a lot of people who don't know what they're doing. And then sometimes the sector kind of puts them in charge or uses them as scapegoats when things don't go that clearly. So I think there's like ambiguity and vagueness in the whole sector. And I think that overall, though, the sector doesn't like to pay um, people with higher qualifications, so registered nurses and other people who've been working for a longer time, so because nursing and care work is also something where, depending on what your qualification is, then you are cheaper or more expensive to hire. So obviously, the more qualified of a nurse you are, if you're a division one who's been working for 10 plus years, you would probably never get a job either casually or otherwise. So it's also a sector that also relies on keeping people at a certain level of qualification, but mm. on that when it's, it serves their interests, but also not investing in its workers or in its people. So everyone also being disposable and then coming into a new pool of personal care attendants or people with just a certificate and then kind of putting complex patients in front of them without the correct resources and support. And, mm. and, they, and they get away with that. Mm. The way this sort of ca- the this, these capitalist societies view disposable bodies, or like, like, or the way that Western society sort of um, looks at age. I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I I just have one thing one thing to say. You know, the only good story I've ever heard about the most perfect age care and I'm I'm I've never worked there myself I'm just going to give a tiny bit of a shout out and a encapsulate something that I heard from a nurse who once worked there is the Mekong age care in in Footscray which is just here and it's actually a privately funded age care but it's got like a good model that makes it affordable for other people this is a Vietnamese Australian age care that is culturally specific and has good ratios and hires people from a Vietnamese background. So every other second or third worker is a Vietnamese person. And the food that they serve there is culturally appropriate. There's culturally appropriate sort of languages and the people there are happier. And it's the only one time that I've ever heard a nurse talk to me about how that's the best aged care they've ever worked in, but also swear that they were never going to work back in aged care again. So this nurse that I worked with had left aged care and they were like, thank God I left that whole area. 
always will talk so positively about this like Mekong place and talk about the food there and how wonderful it was and talk about the, the psychology and the thinking behind the heads of those organizations. So even though it was a private organization, it had so much community um, community pool and community impact that some of the day programs were accessible to people. So sometimes you'd have the locally the local Vietnamese people maybe just go there for a meal or there for a bit of a of, of this or that and then go back home. So that was some of the respite care that they had there as well. So I mean that's the one thing that I want to say if we're talking about the Western paradigm because. Otherwise, I've never seen a culturally appropriate meal. I've just seen slop and other stuff. I mean, the other thing that I can tell you is that there's that example, and then there's examples in the southeastern suburbs. So I know that the Jewish community as well has been really good at looking at having those culturally appropriate and other services. But the ones that I've worked in, you know, only a lot of money can buy and are very expensive in these southeastern suburbs. So you either have to have a lot of money or you need to be operating in this culturally appropriate paradigm. And, and you know, so one is achievable, the other one not so much because not all of us have that kind of money. But the other thing I thought is that it is possible hearing about this Mekong experience and I would love to visit it and, and learn more about that one day. But Michelle, I don't know how many places you've worked at or what you can say about that. I mean, to be honest with you, uh, the racism in aged care, in aged care is off the charts. Uh, I'm just going to be frank. Um, and unfortunately, no place in aged care is immune to the level of racism. And it's a mixture of, um, generations and cultures and beliefs and so many things, um, that kind of, I don't know, that kind of, don't allow for um, communication or something is missing um, in the mainstream aged care homes. Um, they just don't allow for any real or meaningful dialogue between um, their residents who are culturally diverse and themselves. And I think that, yeah, that deprives residents of um, an experience that is culturally um, appropriate to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to aged care workers as well, um, yeah, I feel that the racist, some of the racist stereotypes of a, the race, so for example, um, a racist stereotype of a, um, like an African Australian person would be that they are all criminals, they're all thieves. So what I noticed um, as an aged care nurse is that um, people who are of African descent and work in aged care are often the ones who are lumped with, you know, crimes like theft or they're the first to be looked on as the problem. Um, and I think um, that's something that needs to be, certainly addressed um and it's probably a very complex management issue as well um as well as a cultural issue as well um but again we need to create um better spaces for employees um to be able to practice their culture safely um because that also can inspire residents to practice their own cultures as well 
Mm-hmm. So um yeah, it's we it's in a conversation that needs to be had. Um, and, and and actually, I agree with you, Michelle. And actually, it's you know just also acknowledging that these conversations, you know, are, are happening on stolen land. So also acknowledging, you know, yes. the part we play to, uh, you know, in some of that um, colonial stuff that's happening because everything that we're talking about now in terms of race and racism, um, I think it's always important to think about the first people who were here. And an interesting mm-hmm. thing, actually, that you, you've, you've reminded me of is language, you know, language matters you know australia you know before the arrival of 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 colonizers before colonization had 250 plus languages right yeah. and we know especially working in age care when people decline in terms of their cognitive function if they have spoken more than one language in their lives probably it's most likely that they'll regress to like their first language um sometimes which may be a language other than english right and now people are having all of these conversations around, like, you know, immigrants need to speak English. Now they're trying to ban people coming from other countries to speak English and who don't speak English. And it's ridiculous because in, in, in HK, anyone can tell you that eventually it becomes a melting pot, right? Exactly. The Greek word for water is narrow. And the only way I... And I've got lots of stories about how I come to my words, which are, which are not English, right? That, that aren't my own language. And so mm. I think beauty, and, and like there was this one time where I bumped into this Nigerian nurse who grew up in, 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 in Perth in Western Australia and worked with so many Greek people that he can hold a semi-conversation in Greek. And mm. it's just amazing. Now you're telling me that we're working in in a place that will regress into this multicultural melting pot because we know that one in three Australian people has has like a connection to like another country, you know, has an immigrant connection. And so the best way to work with people sometimes if they've regressed to their language is to learn a few words in their language. Do you know exactly. what I'm saying? So yes. the fear that we give people when we make sure that we know our little Greek words that may be helpful to soothe other people's grandmothers and to soothe other people's whatever. And in turn, to have people turn around and, and make fun of our accent, maybe, you know, bar our partners who don't speak English from coming in to support us. It's diabolical. It's mm-hmm. when, when the language of this country is not even English. I, you know, 250 years as Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people are trying to reclaim their languages because their languages matter. Exactly. And, and we've regressed. Uh, what exactly. do you think we're doing in these HK homes? We're not coming in there talking to someone who doesn't speak English anymore in English. We're finding ways to communicate with them therapeutically as, as the standards that we uphold. Nursing standards are upholding cultural safety and other safety and that includes learning other languages exactly yeah i fully support what was said because at the end of the day you know we are this is a cultural melting pot and we are on stolen land um Mm. and we really it's time to move it's time to shut down the western model of healthcare. it's time to really stop and think about how we're all going to move forward as a nation in our healthcare because we can't continue in the way that it is. 
So we really need a far more inclusive healthcare system in this country for us all to survive. Um, yeah, I, I think I'll leave it on that note. If if we don't, you know, destroy white supremacy, what is there? Like, mm. yeah, it always boils down, like all these issues are interconnected and it boils down to the same thing, you know? Mm. Mm. Very powerful, very great way to uh, end. And thank you so much for joining us today and discussing these issues. That was Hope McTumble and Michelle discussing their perspectives as aged care and disability support workers. The Milky Way looks good in the night sky. The stars open a short, warm my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the sex. And what a show. Thank you so much for tuning in to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. So first up, we heard from Lucy Watson, editor-in-chief of Archer Magazine, who spoke with Rosie about the new issue of the magazine and the digital launch and fundraiser for Give Out Day which is tomorrow night. And then I spoke with Panda Wong about her residency at Incendia Radical Library, Whispers from Home, which is going to be a Google Doc that's going to be updated throughout the length of her residency. After that, I spoke with Dr. Shelley Bielefeld, who's a researcher at Griffith Law School and the Law Future Center at Griffith University, about the cashless debit card and government's push to turn it into a full-blown program. And finally, Shahrazad spoke with Hope Matumbu and with Michelle, who's an aged care nurse, and they both spoke about the perspective of frontline workers in aged care and disability support. Just another plug as well for uh, Rise Refugees Food Truck Fundraiser, so that you can find them on Twitter at, at Rise Refugee, and please do chip in. They're almost at their goal. And also to check out at IRL InfoShop on Instagram to donate to IRL InfoShop's fundraiser to continue to do the mutual aid support that they've been um, doing such an amazing job of uh, throughout the pandemic. And now to Boston Science. See you next week. Bye. See ya.